daily scripture. Uh, we've talked about reading the Bible through this year. Uh, we've selected a chronological plan, and there are copies of it on the Welcome Center. You can use your app on your phone and find that chronological plan and use that. You can just uh, find another plan that you like, but hopefully you're reading the Bible. You're immersing yourself in some way in Scripture on a daily basis. And the reasons for that are many. By means of introduction, let me just go over a few. First of all, God's Word is inspired, breathed out by God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That means it is literally God's Word. People are always looking for miracles today, and a lot of them don't realize that when they're holding a Bible, they're holding in their hands the product of a miracle. The Bible is God's miracle. He, li he literally spoke it into being. And so when you read the pages of the Bible, it's no different from God standing right in front of you and speaking directly to your face. Number two, the Bible is the only book that answers life's most important questions. Questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Science has answers to a lot of good questions, but it can't answer those questions. The Bible tells us why. Number three, the Bible is full of comfort. Life is hard, and we need a trusted source of encouragement. Well, the Bible gives us that. The psalmist said the scriptures were his counselors, Psalm 119, 24. And Paul says in Romans 15, verse 14, whatever was written in former times or former days was written for our instruction that we through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures might have hope. And then also the Bible can save your soul. Receive with meekness, James says in James 1.21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, we know that salvation comes by the blood of Christ, but where do you learn about the blood of Christ and how to come into contact with it? In the Bible. So if you don't have the Bible, you don't even know about the blood of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. That is the sense in which James says the Bible can save your soul. So those are just some ideas up front that should motivate you to Read your Bible on a daily basis and immerse yourself in the Scriptures. We're going to be using the Jews in Berea as an example from Acts chapter 17, verse 11. I invite you to open your Bibles up to this passage of Scripture. Acts 17, 11. The Jews in Berea, Luke tells us, were more noble than those in Thessalonica... They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul had been in Thessalonica. He was only able to stay there three weeks because the persecution there was so severe. Uh, the Jewish people there in that city drove him and his companions out. And so they came to Berea and were pleasantly surprised to find that the Jews in that region were more noble. That's the ESV. New American Standard Version says noble-minded. And the word noble here 
often refers to rank, but here it doesn't have to do with rank, but it has to do with the type of character that the Jews in Berea had. It was a noble character. And uh, that's what attracts our attention this evening. We're talking about daily Christianity, and we want to look at daily Scripture, and there are two reasons why the Bereans are a great example of that. First of all, Luke tells us that they examine the Scriptures daily. That's an obvious reason they're a good example. But also look at that word noble. If it stands for character, character is something you work on every single day. Character is who you are every day at any time of the day. And so we want to be noble like them, noble-minded like them. And that's why we use them as an example. And the question is, what daily habits characterized their lives and made them noble-minded? And so we have four to look at tonight. Here's the first one. Daily eagerness. Luke says they received the word with all eagerness. Now, the Greek word behind that is prothumia. If you break that down, pro means forward. Thumia has to do with the mind. So they were forward-minded. They approached Paul with their minds out front. They approached Paul with, uh, not with their emotions out in front or their emotions on their sleeves, as we sometimes say. They approached him not with their critical faculties just looking to see how they could tear him down. But they approached him with these open minds out front. They saw what he had to say and they wanted to think about it. That's the idea there. And they were very eager to do so. They were an audience excited to hear Paul's preaching. I remember the days when churches had at least two gospel meetings a year. And these were not Sunday through Wednesday meetings, but Sunday through Saturday. A lot of you remember those, right? And we were really excited to go to those, at least the adults were. I have to say there were some times, where as a kid I wasn't super excited about it. But churches had these six-day gospel meetings, and then you had your own meetings, and you'd travel around to other churches and support their meetings as well. And I know that these are different times, and we have greater access to preaching through the internet, and we can access preachers all over the country without having to physically be in their presence. So there are some differences, but I do remember more excitement about the preaching of God's Word than I generally see today. I think we need that fire back, that enthusiasm for the Word of God. Are you enthusiastic about Scripture? You know, you can choose to be enthusiastic. We have, uh, Jason, Tim, and I have started a podcast. I don't know if they wanted me to mention it, um, because we're still trying to figure it out a little bit, and we're getting better at it, so I think it's safe to mention it now. And uh, one of the things we do whenever we are able to record is we, we look at a quotation that we really like. And on this past episode, this is the quotation we talked about, uh, attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson. Listen to it. Enthusiasm is one of the most powerful engines of success. When you do a thing, do it with all your might. Put your whole soul into it. Stamp it with your own personality. Be active. Be energetic. 
Be enthusiastic and faithful, and you will accomplish your object. Nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. So there's a lot that I like about that. And of course, we don't have time to cover all of it tonight. But one of the things I wanted to point out is that Emerson rightly says that enthusiasm is something you choose. People that aren't excited and apathetic have not decided to be energetic and enthusiastic about whatever it is they're concerned about. Well, how do you do that? How do you make that choice? And I think there are two things involved. Number one, to get excited, particularly about the scriptures, study the value and the meaning of the scriptures. Know why it's important. You know, some people are excited about opera. I'm not one of those people. I just don't get it. You know, you, you, you try to just dive right in, and it can be a little off-putting. But I imagine that the people that really enjoy opera have spent a little bit of time trying to figure it out and understand its value and its meaning. They understand the technical difficulties of it. They understand something about the history of it and the art of it. And they know what is being said. You know, a lot of times it's in a foreign language. I don't have any idea what they're singing or what they're talking about. They know the stories behind it. They put a little time into figuring out the value and the meaning, and that's why they are excited about it. And that's like anything. Do you understand why the Bible is important? We went over some reasons in the introduction, why it's valuable, why it's important. Do you understand its meaning? Do you know what the key theme of the Bible is? Salvation. Do you know who the main character of the Bible is? Jesus Christ. Do you know something about the structure of the Bible? The different genres of literature in the pages of Scripture. See, these are things that you can learn, background matters, that will make you more excited about it. Learn about its value and its meaning. And then, I think another key thing for being excited is finding your why. In other words, knowing your motivation. Why is it important to read the Bible? Well, we said it in the beginning. It's important for your salvation. Right? Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Your salvation is at stake. Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. But faith is essential to salvation. Without faith, no one can please God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Unless you believe that I am He, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8, verse 24. You must have faith in order to be saved, but you can't have faith without hearing the word of Christ. And so we all ought to be very motivated to read and study the Bible, that enthusiasm can be attained. If you just spend a little time thinking about how important the Bible is, find your why. Ask yourself, if I didn't have the Bible, uh, 
where would I be? Number two, getting back to the example of the Bereans, we see their daily eagerness. Now look at the daily interpretation. The Bereans examined, King James says searched. Moffat's translation says made a daily study of the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The word examine there, to me, implies more than just casual reading. Right? They were digging down into the scriptures, really studying them. I think what it means is they were interpreting the scriptures as they read them. What use is reading the Bible if you don't understand it? God, I think, requires us to interpret as well as read the scriptures. And you have some examples of this. Um, you go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Whenever they've rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah lead the Israelites through a reading of the book of the law. And it's been a long time since they have focused on the law. So they took their time and they did it carefully. And as they opened the book to be read, all the people stood. And they listened from morning to midday as the scriptures were being read. And in verse 7, it says that men were appointed to go throughout the audience and help the people to understand the law. Well, what were they doing? They were interpreting the scriptures. They were making sure that people understood what was being read. Over in the New Testament, after Jesus' resurrection... He gathers his disciples together. Now, these men had heard the scriptures their whole lives. They were disciples of the Lord. But it says in Luke chapter 24, 4, verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he, just, he didn't just pick at the scriptures piecemeal. But he worked his way systematically through the Bible, interpreting its meaning so that his disciples could understand. So interpretation is very important as well. If you don't interpret the Bible correctly, you can make some big mistakes along the way. Uh, this 16-year-old boy got in his driver's license and he wanted to talk to his dad about using the car. And his dad said, well, I want to see some things change. He said... I tell you what, if you work really hard on your schoolwork, get good grades, study your Bible a little bit every day, and get a haircut, then we'll talk about you using the car. So a couple months later, the young man goes back to his father. He says, how about the keys to the car? His dad said, well, your schoolwork looks good. I've been noticing you studying the Bible, but you haven't gotten a haircut. And his son said, well, I've been thinking about that. He said, and Samson had long hair. And every time you see Moses and Jesus depicted, they have long hair. And his father said, and yes, and everywhere they went, they walked. You can get the wrong impression sometimes if you're trying to twist the scriptures and you're not interpreting them correctly. One of the most common mistakes is taking a passage out of context. You know, you can support just about any teaching of Scripture. 
I mean, you can support just about any practice or philosophy with the Bible if you're not using it correctly, if you're taking it out of context. And what we mean by context is the parts before and after the passage that you're studying. Uh, the specific context might be the paragraph before and the paragraph after. The general context could be the chapter you're in, the, bio, the book you're in, the Testament, or the whole Bible itself. You need to understand who's doing the talking and what the circumstances of the passage are. And if you don't do that, you can make some serious errors in interpretation. Uh, Satan himself knew how to twist the scriptures out of context to back up his positions when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. So we need to be careful about misusing scripture and twisting them for our own benefits. Daily interpretation will keep us from doing that. Number three, we see in the example of the Bereans, daily caution. Going back to Acts 17, verse 11, they were searching the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they were comparing the Scriptures with Paul's preaching to see if what he was saying was true. And the implication here is, if he had strayed away from the Scriptures, they would have rejected his preaching. Uh, the attitude here is impressive. Because this isn't just anybody preaching, right? This is Paul. And we know that when Paul went through places on his missionary journeys, he worked miracles. Now, there's no record of miracle working here in Berea, but on these missionary journeys, this was a common thing for Paul. Uh, in Antioch of Pisidia, Acts chapter 13, he strikes a magician there named Elemus. He strikes him with blindness. Uh, in chapter 14, he causes uh, a lame man to walk, and the people in that pagan society get so excited, they start calling Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes, because he's the chief speaker. Uh, in Philippi, Acts chapter 16, this uh, girl with an evil spirit who gave her powers of divination starts to kind of get on Paul's nerves, so he casts the demon out of her, and that's what lands Paul and Silas in prison. They're in Ephesus in uh, Acts chapter 19, and Paul's power, God's power through Paul, is so great that people are bringing handkerchiefs that Paul has touched and aprons that he has touched and bringing them into contact with the sick and with those who are demon-possessed, and they're being healed. So I don't think it's a stretch to, to believe that in Acts chapter 17, when he went to Berea, he was confirming his message with miracles. And still, what were they doing? More important to them than the miracles was whether his teaching matched the Word of God. They were cautious about this new message they were hearing. Now, sometimes we get things upside down. We shun the truth and we warmly accept false teaching. We live in the days of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to them who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in those days. 
That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? People are gullible and ready to accept false teaching. Why is it? I think Paul answers that question in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where in verses 3 and 4 he says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. One example is how we have moved in our understanding of what Christian sexual ethics should be. There was an alarming study that came out by the Pew Research Center that said that professing Christians in the U.S. are three times more accepting of same-sex marriage and relationships now than they were 20 years ago. Look how far we've come in 20 years. Now, these aren't just average people on the street. These are people who claim to follow Christ. Three times more accepting of homosexual activity than just 20 years ago. It didn't take that long for culture to pull us away from the truth. For 3,500 years, the Judeo-Christian tradition has been that sex should be between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. And in 20 years, we moved away from that position. Why? People weren't cautious. They weren't careful. They weren't comparing Scripture with culture. And we have to understand that false teachers can be very convincing and very persuasive. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come in sheep's clothing. They're convincing. They're attractive. Persuasive. What's going on on the inside? The only way you can tell is compare, it with, compare their teaching with the Word of God. Jesus said, You will recognize them by their fruits. Look at the teaching. Look at the Bible. If it doesn't match up, don't listen to it. It's wrong. It's not true. Exercise some caution. Here's a couple of particular areas where we need to be cautious. Be cautious with traditions. A tradition is just something that's been handed down, a teaching or practice that's been handed down from previous generations. And a tradition itself is neither good or bad. The question is, does the tradition help us follow the Word of God or not? In Mark chapter 7, there was a challenge regarding the tradition of washing hands before eating. Not sanitary, but ceremonially. And Jesus' disciples were being criticized because they weren't engaging in this ceremonial hand washing. And Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees on that occasion that they had made void the word of God by their traditions they had handed down. Maybe there was a good reason to start that tradition in the beginning, but the reason had been lost, and they could no longer tell the difference between faith and opinion. And that can happen to us as well. We have to sort out traditions that are opinion from the matters of faith. And what happens is a tradition is developed for discretionary reasons, a method, a way of doing things that worked for the time. And as times change, 
and needs changed. The tradition no longer helped. It either got in the way or it became a sacred cow. And now people are starting to put more respect in the tradition than the Word of God. And when that happens, we can run the risk of forgetting what God's will is. And so one of the areas we need to be cautious is traditions. Another area is trends. Now, a trend is something that is popular for the time. Now, think about this. In 500 A.D., the church was not debating instrumental music and worship because all Christians worshipped singing a cappella. It wasn't a trend. It wasn't something that people worried about. They were debating other matters. In 1650, the church wasn't debating the role of women in worship. It wasn't an issue then. In 1950, it wasn't debating same-sex marriage. These are all issues that came up because of the times, trends in the times. Likewise, we're not currently debating the humanity of Jesus as they were in the 4th century church. That matter has been settled. We're not debating slavery as they sadly had to do in this country in the 19th century because Finally, our society has moved away from that abhorrent practice. And so it's not something that we debate now. We have our issues of today. And it's the trends that drive things. And you can be sure of this. Whatever philosophies and practices are popular in the world today will try to make their way into the church. We live in times now where the Catholic Church is accepting civil unions between same-sex partners, where the Methodist Church has split over homosexuality. And we see it coming. Are we ready for it? Are we going to be cautious? Are we going to look at the scripture that hasn't changed in 2,000 years? Or are we simply going to be responding to what culture tells us is right and true? The Word of God doesn't change, we need to be cautious about these changes that culture is trying to bring to us. The Bereans were, and that's what made them noble-minded. Here's the last thing that we can learn from them. Daily application. When you get into verse 12 of Acts 17, Luke writes that many of them therefore believed. They were enthusiastic they interpreted the scriptures. They cautiously compared them to Paul's teaching. Therefore, they believed. And belief, as Luke uses it and as the New Testament writers use it, often refers to action based on that belief. So they were obedient to what was being preached. They became Christians. They applied the scriptures to their lives. When the scriptures are merely academic, they don't make any difference in our lives. The scriptures were meant to apply to you personally. We talked about this a little bit this morning. But I want you to think about this. The scriptures over and over again tell us that they are tailor-made for you personally. You the individual. They search your heart Hebrews chapter 4, 4, verse 12. 
The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. They illuminate your paths. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They revive your soul. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. They lead to your reward. Psalm 19, verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. They show your love for Christ. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. They determine your salvation. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And they will be used to judge your heart at the last day. Jesus said, whoever rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him at the last day. John chapter 12, verse 48. So every day after you enthusiastically pick up your Bible and read and interpret what it has said to you and cautiously examine the culture around you, apply what you've learned. There are all kinds of ways to do that. You don't really have to have a system. It's just about listening and asking, what is this saying to me personally today in my life? But there are ways to do this if you're looking and if you're interested. I, I like this that I found several years ago, uh, Martin Luther's practice when he would meditate on the scriptures. It was a four-stage process. After he read the Bible, there would be instruction where he'd ask the question, what does the Lord demand of me? And then there would be thanksgiving. He would ask, how does this teaching lead me to praise and worship God and thank Him for what He has done for me? Then the third step was confession. How does this scripture lead me towards repentance and confession? You know, it doesn't matter where you are in the Bible, you're often going to be challenged, right? It's going to confront your sin. And so it's important to recognize that and respond appropriately. And then finally, prayer. How does it prompt me to appeal to God in petition and supplication? Exercises like that ensure that you don't treat the Word of God just as an academic exercise. You know, we've all known people who were very smart and who knew answers to a lot of Bible questions, but it was strictly academic for them, a way to win arguments, a way to look smart before people. And that's not what the Bible's all about. The Bible is supposed to be a part of your life, your daily life. And so daily Christians need daily Scripture. What is reading? Reading is nothing more than thinking another person's thoughts. So whenever you pick up a book, you're getting the thoughts of a, the author of that book and you're putting them in your head. And you think about that, maybe you'll be a little more careful about the people you read. If you want to think God's thoughts and you want God to be a part of your interior life, You've got to read His Word. 
And the more you read it, the more you immerse yourself in it, the more like Him you will become. And your life will be lived from the inside out as it should be. A noble character is needed to live righteously in the world. And that character can be yours by following the example the Bereans have set for us in Acts chapter 17. They heard the word and believed. Do you believe? Do you need help applying the scriptures tonight? If we can do anything for you, we encourage you to come right now as we stand together and as we sing.